Now we head to Washington, D.C. and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold. So, uh, David, uh, President Trump ran away with the South Carolina primary as predicted. Nikki Haley says, hey, you know, 40 percent, the 40 percent I got is not zero, so I'm staying in. So what do you see as her game plan here? Why stay in? Well, she's got a lot of money. Some of her her backers have now backed off. The Koch Network that had supported her for a long time has has backed off. But a lot of people have been supporting her. She's building an identity in the country. I mean, if you look at the polls that put her head-to-head versus Biden, she beats Biden by like 15 or 18 points. So I think she's trying to show people, look, I'm out here, you know, and I guess it's a play for 2028 that people will, if Trump loses again, people will say, okay, it's time for somebody new. I don't know. It it doesn't seem like she is going to give up and become Trump's vice president, which is what I thought was going to happen a month ago. Mm -hmm. Um, It does seem like she's going to fight on for at least another couple of weeks. Then I think she'll leave. And, you know, she is, I think, looking, trying to find a new post a new political life other than the model we've seen from Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Ron DeSantis, which is run against Trump, then turn around and kiss his butt and stay kissing his butt for the rest of your career. Really? She's looking for something different, yeah. Oh, oh I see. She's she's not going to do that. I, uh, I don't think she's going to do that. But what, what that looks like, I don't know. Nobody else has tried it. Yeah. Now, this I, I hear this no labels group is still active. Is there a chance that she could be a third-party candidate? I don't see that happening, just because I feel like they it would be so destructive to her career in Republican politics if she ran directly against Trump in the general election and potentially cost Trump the election or people would see her as having cost Trump the election. Uh, also, no labels seem such, like such a lame group. I feel like whoever runs with them is going to end up getting very little of a vote. Yeah, do we know who they're planning on putting up? Do you have any guesses? No. They, they're, well, they're, you know, the previous uh, sort of uh, options had been Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, who said he's not running. Larry Hogan, the former governor of Maryland, who's now said he's running for Senate. So, you know, there were people out there who seemed like they might be marginally good candidates, but they've gone. I don't see anybody else with that kind of stature coming into the picture for them. Gavin Newsom continues to be really active as Biden's uh, surrogate. What's his game plan? At 2028 for him. I mean, I, and I guess maybe in 2024, if, he, if Biden has a health problem or some other reason Biden has to step aside. But I think, you know, there's people out there like Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, other people who are trying to sort of use this as a test run for 2028 to make themselves look like the Democratic frontrunner, the young Democratic frontrunner. Yeah. Speaking of uh, Michigan, um, well, I, hadn't, I haven't checked since yesterday, but uh, Biden's Michigan poll numbers look terrible. Yeah, they're, they're, his numbers in Michigan do look terrible. And I think, you know, there's been a few theories for that. One theory is that there's so many Arab Americans who live in Michigan, and they're really, really unhappy with the way Biden has handled the war in Gaza with his sort of not completely unchecked, but pretty strong support of Israel. The question is, do those people become Biden? If there's a ceasefire, if the war in Gaza ends, if they realize that Trump is probably more aggressively pro-Israel than Biden, do they become Biden voters again or do they just not vote? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out. I mean, if they remember Trump's reaction after 9-11, they actually think he'd be better for them? Yeah, it's still early. A lot of people are really mad at Biden about this, you know, and I think have not really come around to the idea that their choices are going to be Biden or Trump. Um, so I, I can't I don't know if we can really use it to predict what's going to happen in the fall. But if I was Biden, I'd be worried looking at that. It's one of his states he yeah. needs to win, and his numbers look terrible there. Yeah. Now, uh, knowing you to be an avid student of Donald Trump's finances, uh, is he in financial trouble with this uh, New York verdict? Apparently, he's filed a notice uh, of appeal, but he still has to put up a bond. And we're still waiting to see if he can cut that check or not. What do you think? Well, he's, he's asked for a delay in it. It doesn't seem like it will take a huge bite out of the av- available cash he has. 
you know, I think he's hoping to delay it because in late March, there's a chance that there'll be this uh, vote on that SPAC, his, the, the weird stock market company that he was trying to establish uh-huh. that might actually make that go through. And all of a sudden, these shares he has in that company would be worth billions of dollars. So he may just be trying to play for time and hope that comes through. For now, it doesn't seem like he has the cash to put it up and maybe doesn't want to have to sell something now to, to put up a bond. I'm sorry, this, this SPAC, can you t- this company, what is this about? I haven't heard about that. Well, this is something he had first announced back in the fall of 2021. He has um, Trump Media, which is basically just that truth social oh, uh, Twitter, clone, Twitter clone. And there's a complicated structure where they could take that public on the stock market. And he all of a sudden would own zillions of shares in this company. The shares, because they're bought by people who love Trump, are worth like $47 a piece. His stake would be theoretically worth billions. Um, the question is whether that goes through and whether he can actually, you know, get those shares to the market and turn them into cash. I see. So so he could pull the trigger on that any time if he needs to? Well, there's a, there's a vote of shareholders on March 22nd, which I think would, would move him closer to having it. But then still, by according to the terms of the deal, he couldn't sell his shares for six months. Uh, the question is whether he get them to waive that and sell them right away. Yeah. Okay, we have an interesting development on the Texas border. Of course, Texas being your home state. Where uh, both Biden and Trump will be there. They'll be 325 miles apart, different uh, border crossings. But uh, Biden apparently seems to be uh, newly engaged in this issue. Uh, Is he going to issue that executive order that uh, that I'm I'm really not sure where he stands on it. But there are legal experts who have told me that, yeah, he could reverse all the changes he made when he first took office to shut off the flow of migrants. Is he going to do that? I think he's going to do something like that. I mean, it seems like he's at least going to blame the Republicans for not, you know, torpedoing this border deal they have and basically try to change the blame from currently being directed at him to to Trump um, for the problems of the border. But I do think he's going to try to do some things that will look stronger on the border because that is one of the biggest handicaps for him going into this election. And is this, does he have time to turn around voter opinion on that? Or do you think uh, it's just baked in that he's an open border guy? I think he does have time. I mean, just remember, regular people, people not like you and I, they don't think about politics all the time, are not really going to engage with this election until July or August at the earliest. So I do think there is time for Biden to to change people's opinion and to sort of, like, you know, take a new stance on the border. But, you know, if he's going to do it, he should start doing it now. David Farenthold from the New York Times. Thank you, David. Thank you. Choke points. Let's go. The big Tuesday buffet edition. There are big changes coming to I-90 in Mercer Island and Bellevue. And, of course, toll rates go up on 405 and 167. Here's Chris. And let's uh, start with the toll increases first, because Friday is the day that the minimums and maximums go up on 405 and 167. The minimum toll on both corridors will go up to a dollar. The maximum rate will go up to $15. The peak period for the HOV requirements will also be expanded to 8 p.m., one extra hour. For those who are not familiar with the tolling corridors on 405 and 167. These are a congestion pricing model. The toll allows solo drivers and cars under the HOV requirement to pay their way into the lanes. The toll rate goes up as congestion gets worse, so people will choose not to pay their way in the more expensive it gets. It's all about pricing people out of those faster lanes. Well, it turns out the maxes were not doing their job in pricing people out. That's why they are being increased to $15. Sometime in 2025, the entire toll system from Linwood to Puyallup will go active, where you will be able to pay your way into express lanes the entire way. The toll rates will also be segmented at that time, meaning you will be charged multiple times on that trip. Today, you only pay one price when you get into the lanes in 2025. 
1.5, there will be one toll segment from Puyallup to Renton, a second from Renton to Bellevue, and a third from Bellevue to Linwood. So you will be charged a new toll in each one of those segments, a maximum of $45, though it is unlikely that all the segments will be at the max at the same time. It's possible you could hit two of them, depending on the time of day. But yeah, that's what we're looking at when the whole system goes active and is completed in 2025. You're going to be really late to pay that. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, need to get somewhere in a hurry. Uh, So that's uh, what's going on. But Friday's the first day. I'm expecting us to hit that first $15 probably Tuesday. Uh, Fridays are usually a Friday light, and Monday can be hit or miss depending on the weather. So I'm expecting Tuesday, if you're betting, that's when we're going to hit the kazoo or the trumpet or the trombone or whatever I've got to come up with for $15. Now, let's talk about eastbound I-90 over Mercer Island, Dave, something really close to your heart. Drivers have been dealing with the right lane closure for a month now, approaching the East Channel Bridge. We've got a failing expansion joint that has forced the state to close that right lane. Washdot plans to restripe the lanes next weekend, March 8th to 10th. If the weather allows, the workers or the workers will return eastbound 90 to four lanes over that weekend, which should help with that daily 15 to 20 minute delay we've been seeing. The lanes will only be 10 feet wide, though. The expansion joint on track to be repaired next year. And one more from I-90. Colleen mentioned this in her uh, traffic reset or her news reset right there, that westbound HOV lane should have been closed overnight near Bellevue College. Looks like the weather might have postponed it because I haven't seen that those uh, cones have gone in so far. And then they're going to do some restriping because this is for the massive fish culvert project that Sunset Creek that we talked about last year. The eastbound HOV lane has been blocked for about a year. It's going to remain blocked until May of 2025. And now the westbound HOV lane is going to be blocked for about two years as they move around the construction zone there right at Sunset Creek, which is right there by the T-Mobile building or the Humane Society building, depending on what what your frame of reference is for 405 there in Factoria. So the state's building four new bridges over Sunset Creek during this multi-year fish passage project, which is one of the most uh, complex of any that they've done so far. Well, I hope the salmon appreciate it. Yeah, I hope so, too, and the trout and whatever else and might, 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 be, might be there. But, yeah, that's a big project. But, yeah, we're flipping things around, and so now it's going to be the westbound direction that's going to have some lane restrictions to deal with as we go forward. I'm curious, has the, has the uh, DOT ever done any surveys on the annual incomes of people who are willing to pay $15 every day, uh, I guess, each way? To get to work, I don't think they can. Contra- uh, that that kind of information could be available, but it would you'd probably have to opt into giving up that kind of information yeah. to the DOT. Uh, though they could ask for a you know just a public comment. Hey, the, for those of you that do, as opposed to providing, because they get most of our information. You know, when you get a good to go account, yeah. but not what your annual uh, salary is. But that would be an interesting thing to find out. You know, is it really a Lexus Lane or is it people who run a contracting business who yeah. really got to get to their uh, get to their appointments to start their work? Is it, a you know, landscaping? Is it, you know, who? Yeah, it'd be an interesting to find out uh, who, who can pay that. Uh, I know John Curley. We'll, uh, we'll pay that. Well, yeah. Uh, or he'll most likely just pretend he's HOV <laughs> and skirt it. Uh, that's the price of doing business uh, for JC. Yes, it is. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien. As everyone knows, fentanyl has become a uh, huge crisis in this area and uh, in many cities. And Dr. Royal Garcia, who is an emergency room doctor, 
has announced his candidacy against uh, Maria Cantwell, and you've made this your big issue. First of all, where where are you? Uh, where do you work as a doctor? I'm the medical director of Toppenish Hospital mm-hmm. uh, in Eastern Washington. And so, what made you decide to go on this crusade? Well, I think we are looking at a national crisis in in front of us, and I don't believe that we are paying enough attention to it. I mean, every day I see three, four, and two days ago, five overdoses in my shift in the emergency department. This is a crisis that is getting bigger and bigger and is killing our children in our street. Why why do you think the legislature can uh, the, or the Congress can do something about this? Well, we need to take drastic measures. And if we take the example of Portugal, for example, in 2001 that had a big opioid epidemic and the government actually came in and said, we need to take drastic measures. We need to put dealers in jail and we need to have involuntary mandatory rehabilitation for addicts. That really has become the example for others to follow. And I think that, you know, being a scientist, I look for things that have worked. And we have that example from from Portugal. We have a crisis in America. We have our children dying in the street. So I'm proposing as as U.S. Senator to pass the Americans Against Fentanyl Act that will give manslaughter charges to drug dealers that deal fentanyl and involuntary mandatory six-month rehabilitation for the addicts on our street. As a physician, I could tell you that these individuals – their brain is telling them to lie, cheat, and steal to get that next fix, and they can't help it. And for us to build a compassionate government, we need to take these individuals out of that environment and put them in a comprehensive rehabilitation program that includes mental health and counseling and even agreements with businesses, tech, and even universities that would take these graduates from the rehabilitation programs back into society, back into the families. That's what I feel would be compassionate government. I don't think there'd be much pushback against the idea of uh, uh, mandatory manslaughter charges for fentanyl pushers. That's probably a pretty easy lift. But the idea of involuntary commitment is something that's been really hard to get through because there's this idea that you shouldn't be able just to grab somebody who hasn't committed uh, a crime against somebody else. I mean, yeah, it's he's hurt himself, but it's hard to justify legally forcibly putting that person into treatment. So how would you get beyond that? So I I know that commitment is a buzzword and probably will, will create a lot of uh, dialogue on this on both sides and people have a visceral feeling about it. You know, I would like to call it, uh, you know, mandatory rehabilitation because as a physician, I could tell you that these individuals cannot think for themselves. And the successful addicts, the, 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 the addicts that have succeeded in rehab always come back and say, thank you. Thank you for taking me out of that environment when I couldn't make the decision for uh, myself. And I think that through medicine and science, we could prove that these individuals need that help, that we need to help those that can't help themselves. Just as if we would see someone drinking Drano, that is not normal, right? We would try and help that person. Well, these individuals are drinking death. And the statistics are such that right now, fentanyl is killing a human being every four minutes and 50 seconds in America. This is not acceptable. If we would have a plane with 300 people die every day in a crash, the government would step in and say, okay, we're going to ground aviation until we have a solution. 
this is uh, to me analogous to that and even more important it is a health crisis so if we treat it as a health crisis mm -hmm. it'll be easier to understand why we need to take these individuals out of that toxic environment and put them in a very comprehensive rehabilitation that would work dr raul garcia emergency room physician uh, turned senate candidate thank you very much thank you so much for the opportunity your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft, students at a medical school in New York. They got the surprise of a lifetime. They learned tuition will be free for all students going forward. And it's all thanks to a $1 billion donation. I'm happy to share with you that starting in August this year, the Albert Einstein College of Medicine will be tuition free. <laughs> The gift, as you heard from Dr. Ruth Gottsman, it's the largest ever made to any medical school in the country. Current fourth-year students will even be reimbursed for their spring 2024 semester. Moving forward, all students will receive free tuition starting in the fall. Gottsman has been working at the college for more than five decades, studying children's development and learning disabilities. She is the chair of the Einstein Board of Trustees and serves on the board for a health system. The fortune came from her late husband, David Gottsman, who was a so-called protege of Warren Buffett. According to Monday's announcement, the school focuses on medical research, education, clinical investigation, currently home to 1,000 students, now going tuition-free. Wow. It's got to feel good when you sign up for medical <laughs> sure school does. of all things. Elliot, my uh, oldest, she was asking me, how much does it cost to go to college to be a doctor? She wants to be a doctor right now, right? And I, was, I told her, I said, I don't know, $100,000? She was like, what? I said, yeah, there's certain trade-offs for certain. You said, honey, price is no object. If yeah. you want to be a doctor, we will help you be a doctor. Absolutely. No, I'm not trying to scare her away from medical school, but you got to tell her the realities, right? No, you don't. Not now. No? Let her find out for herself later like the rest of us did. Kids are too smart these days, Dave. They, they could just Google it themselves, don't you see? I'd rather be honest. And now for the G and Ursula show, which starts at 9 o'clock. Here is G. Scott. Oh, bro, you, Seattle, you can't uh, come with that funny. That. Right? Come it's on. like I want to laugh, but I don't because it's yeah. a serious crime. It but Dave serious. makes me laugh, so I can't yeah. help it. Anyway... <laughs> Seattle's at the top of another important list. Uh, it turns out of the roughly 3.1 million of us in the Seattle metro area, about 26% uh, talk on the phone, the phone, with families, <laughs> friends, and neighbors less than once a week in a typical week. So Now the follow-up question is, what kind of phone? Is yes. it a landline or a cell phone? Because you're the only person I know with a landline. I've got a landline. i got two landlines. No, no, Ursula, two? Ursula, two. hold on. You Ursula, too, Sully? Ursula got the landline. Sully, you got the landline. A lot of folks not. keep them. My father, before he passed, mm -hmm. he said, you always got to keep a landline. You channel. have one, too? No, heck no. <laughs> but, but, Rest in peace, but, Dad. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah, but, but, but he would say to me, well, champ, if you got to call somebody Collect. What if you, you what if you go down and you in a jail cell? You need to call me collect. What you gonna do? <laughs> I haven't had a landline since I left my parents' house years and yeah. years and years and years ago. So this article, by the way, Gene Balk does this for the Seattle Times. Well done. Love that dude. Never met the dude before, but uh, this article is great. Here's why. Because it further proves that the Seattle freeze is real. <laughs> People don't like talking to folks. As a matter of fact, just to let you guys know, 26 percent of y'all only talk with family, friends, and or neighbors less than once a week. The San Francisco, which is a distant second, is at 20 percent, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I looked at this thing and I found out people on the West Coast 
don't like talking to people, whereas people on the East Coast do. On the East Coast, my family members, they're like, hey, just pick up the phone and call me. But here's why this happens. What happens is, is... People lose, you lose control when you have to get on the phone, hmm. right? I can't, like, put you off. I can't. I have to actually talk to you. So, David, this morning, <laughs> here's what's interesting. This morning, David Burbank sent that to Our me. Our producer. Yes. He sent the article to me. And I said, I looked at it. And I said, oh, my goodness. I said, I cannot wait to talk to you guys about this. Here's what happened. Phone call comes in. It's somebody back from Chicago. He's not listening, so I can tell y'all. From Chicago, we grew up together. Neighbor on the block. Now, Colleen, listen. He started rapping in like 1988. Okay? Yeah. And every time I talk to this friend, he wants to tell me about his new song. And so I knew that this morning would be no different. Yeah, you had no time for that this morning. But I said to myself, self, you've been ignoring his calls. Mm. It's time that you answer the phone. What's wrong with just telling him? Like, hey, man, like, I'd rather talk to you about something else. You can't do that. No, you can't. You can't can't do that. I've been working on that honesty in conversation, so I actually enjoy my conversation. So, David, as our millennial correspondent, uh, what do you do? He's terrified of phone calls. I am, yeah. So (laughs) if you are not my wife... My mom, well, and some concessions, I will put off calls for my mom as well because they're mm-hmm. like hour-long calls. And then I'll call her back and we'll have lovely conversations. Or my mother-in-law or father-in-law, I won't answer the phone at all, bar none. Even if you're in my contacts, I won't answer it. I'll let it go to voicemail. I'll listen to the voicemail and assess, do I need to call you back? <laughs> Can I just I text you? And if they don't leave a voicemail, you just don't call back, right? That's, that's all Clearly them. it wasn't exactly. important. Now, yeah. everybody laughing at David, but this is, by the way, Seattle, Seattle area, we are the worst in the country oh, yeah. at this, at telephonophobia. Uh, telephonophobia, I'm tired of these new phobia. I'm tired of yeah. these new words. Now, Whatever. It's me- also like, I, I don't like bastardizing phobia as well because it's mm-hmm. a real problem. So phobia is being used improperly here, but I get it. So in the Seattle area, 36.5% of adults talk on the phone socially at least three times or more a week. However, the national average is 47%. So again, the Seattle freeze is real, and you listening right now, you got a problem with talking to people. Yeah. Thank you, Gene. <laughs> is it a problem we need to solve, though? I mean, I don't know. See what I'm saying? Yeah, we need to talk to each other more. We're going to check in with our legislative reporter, Cairo News Radio's Matt Markovich. So, Matt, the idea of a 7% cap on rent appears to be dead? Yeah, or stalled. You to pick the term you want to use, the legislative term. I heard you talk about it in your commentary, Dave. So here's some of the nuts and bolts of what happened. You know, the controversial rent stabilization bill, which aimed to cap yearly residential rent increases to 7% has died or stalled, If depending on what term you want to use in the state legislature. The Ways and Means uh, Chair, uh, Democrat June Robinson, announced that yesterday. Now, she and her Democrats' friends decided not to hold a vote on House Bill 2114 in her committee, and that's basically signaling an end to the legis- legislative efforts for this year. Now, Democrats control both the House and the Senate, so it's up to the party leadership, like Robinson, to decide what 
what bills to vote on. So there was, she said there was no Republican support and there wasn't enough Democratic support to get the bill out of committee. However, Robinson's Democratic colleagues in the House, she's a senator, expressed dissatisfaction with the Senate's failure to move the measure forward. Now, the bill had passed the House 5443 on February 13th with Democrats voting in favor of it. It was a tight vote. Some Democrats joined Republicans in saying no. Um, its co-sponsor, Representative Nicole Macri, a Democrat of Seattle, openly criticized the Senate Democrats for not acting, saying Senate Democrats are ignoring a statewide emergency with skyrocketing rents. Well, Senator Mark Mullet, he's a Democrat from Issaquah. He's the vice chair of that committee that had not did not vote on that, had been working behind the scenes openly to prevent the bill from becoming a reality and was openly opposed to the bill. Now, he's, I spoke with him about it, and then he went on with Jason Rance to discuss his opposition. I felt that this concept is fundamentally flawed. If you want to lower the price of something, you need to have more of it. And any bills you pass that lead to less of that commodity being produced isn't going to help. Now, Mullet argued that passing the bill would lead to fewer units of new residential housing being built per year, potentially deterring developers from investing in Washington. You know, right now, I think we build roughly 45,000 housing units a year. We're trying to get to 55,000. We're trying to do an extra 10,000 above our normal build rate. I think if that bill had passed, we could have dropped down to 30,000 or 35,000. And we're a sales tax state. So when you lose sales tax on construction from homes, those are your big ticket items. I mean, you're building $500,000 ticket items. So not only do you have fewer homes for people to live in, but you have actually less money in your operating budget. Try to provide those supports for people who are going through tough times. And, and I feel really strongly this bill would have sent us in the wrong direction. So he's a very powerful person on that committee, and uh, that's why I wanted to focus on him and his comments on why the bill was killed, uh, Dave. Uh, One last thing is that the Washington Low-Income Housing Alliance is urging the Senate Majority Leader, Annie Billig, to disregard the committee's inaction and revive the bill and bring it directly to the Senate floor, which they have a possibility of doing. So that's why Mm -hmm. when we say things are dead or stalled... uh, Anything can be re- resurrected in the legislature. Okay, let's talk about speed cameras. What's yeah, up with that? And uh, we've talked about this before. Start off as a really good idea. House Bill 2384 originally would authorize speed cameras to detect speed violations on state routes and work zones in city streets and county roads. It expanded the authorization to do this to populations of 10,000 or more. Basically, only the city of Seattle could have done it prior authorizes civilian employees to review infractions detected by these cameras and issue the infraction. Yeah, it would. uh, And and that bill passed the House on February 13th, 58 to 39. That's a party line vote. But then it went to the Senate Transportation Committee. And then yesterday, and that's and I should point out that's led by Senator Marco Elias, a Democrat, which uh, Chris Sullivan is very familiar with. Yes. He and other Democrats basically rewrote the bill as a striker and added a whole bunch of stuff to it, which prompted the Republicans who originally supported the idea of safety cameras to detect speeders in work zones to vote against the committee, uh, vote against this new bill. Here's the ranking Democrat, Chris King. Curtis we King. extended our willingness to look at cameras when we tried to protect and are protecting our highway workers. This is a very extensive bill that expands the use of cameras. So I know there will be some no votes on our side. I believe so he's a Republican. What, yeah, he's a Republican. Okay. He's a ranking Republican. So what do they add? What did Elias add? Well, 
in cities with populations of 500,000 or more, basically that's Seattle, these cameras can, you can get, they're going, they can detect people just basically stopping in traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can violation of people stopping in intersections and crosswalks, public transportation uh, only lanes, uh, stopping in restricted lanes. Now, in counties, one and a half million people or more, which is basically King County, safety cameras on buses can be used to ticket people for stopping and standing and parking in bus stop zones. And safety cameras on ferries can now be used and ticket people to detect ferry queue violations and 25% of the revenues would be deposited taken by the state deposited into a transportation safety account and here's the one thing that really stuck out at me and that's what I want to bring up it says it removes the speed camera violation exemption for law enforcement fire department vehicles and ambulances hmm. so basically you'd cops, find fi- you'd find the fire department for speeding yeah. through a speed camera Yes, I, I I started working on this yesterday, calling people. I said, is that really true? And the best I can get from the staff is, yes, I haven't heard from Elias yet. He wouldn't, he wouldn't talk about these changes publicly. And so real quickly, I want to just, you know, go what, what Jeff, the Republicans tried to change things. So here's Jeff Wilson on one thing he wanted to change. It uh, does require voter approval of uh, any new ordinances authorizing the use of traffic safety cameras, having that local input decision versus, well, Olympia. Well, that idea failed on a voice vote. On uh, It was an amendment. What about where all the money goes? The net cost of operating this direct to go to the motor vehicle fund. I think this sends a very clear message that this is really about more traffic safety than anything else, not the revenue. That failed. What about reducing the mandatory $145 fine? It's zero for the first offense and $75 for the second offense. And that failed. And finally, what about that element where a non-police officer can write a speeding ticket? Rather than just anybody to review the citations and say, yep, they're getting a ticket, uh, I would prefer that to be issued by police versus having just a civilian employee review the infractions and say, here's the infraction. And that failed. So basically, I know Chris wants to weigh in on this. He put a lot of stuff in a bill that originally was a great idea, and now... Was that deliberate? Was, it, was this an attempt to, to, to torpedo the whole thing? Wait, say that again. Was this just a deliberate attempt to torpedo the whole thing? No, no, no. This is what Senator Elias is known to do. He did this oh. with the tires that Chris was talking about. Yeah. Slid the, it failed, and and uh, there's restrictions on low rolling resistance tires. He put that in an EV bill, and the, he didn't. He doesn't say. He doesn't explain these changes openly uh-huh. but this is what they do at the very last minute basically added pages and pages right. of of things to a bill that was originally just about work speed zone cameras in work zones uh and so i won't I'll, say, I'll say it matt it. i'll say it matt okay, it's just okay, super, I okay, i'll say it it's just super shady that you rewrite the entire bill in executive session and it pops out the other end as nothing they have discussed before yeah. that's the way senator leas operates He's, it's super shady in an era when we want transparency we get super shady out of senator leas it's just the way it is yeah. there you go thank you yeah. matt you're welcome, Dave. 823. Well, really? that's going to make a promo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, open government. Yeah. Good for you. You got to call it well, like I it mean, is. Chris is their conduit, and he's glad to do it. Wow. <laughs> now that's going to make it a promo. <laughs> right and that is Mickey time. For no reason particularly, we thought we would uh, talk about that 
sinking feeling. No reason at all. That uh, happens when you wake up and realize you slept through your alarm. Does that ever happen to you? It happens yeah. all the time. Yeah. All the time, really? No. Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> um, that might be a problem. I was just Mickey? trying to, you know, to make, make Dave, Dave feel, feel better, better because he overslept mm-hmm. yesterday for yeah. the second time in 10 years that I've worked there, with you. No. I mean, you never do it. There was one time in 1992. Okay. Never, so three times in your career you've yeah. overslept. Yeah. But Cutie came in, disheveled, popped right into the interview, mm-hmm. and you did a phenomenal job. So well, I don't see why you. it's a problem. That's very nice of you. Yeah. Uh, but I, as I was mentioning to Mickey, it it does make you feel disoriented, or at least at my mm-hmm. advanced stage, makes you feel disoriented no, for the rest of the day. Right, it really does. Right? And there are a couple yeah. of things. There are a couple of things that, that you can do to help mm-hmm. get out of that funk. Okay, number one, make the dreaded phone call or text that you're running behind. Yeah. Just get it over with and make the explanation brief. Hey, I'm running late and then apologize. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry. I overslept or I didn't set my alarm and then get back to business. Why Mm -hmm. is that number one? Well, because it sets the tone. You want to go ahead and stop yourself from rushing, according to career coaches and other people who had, you know, wanted to chime in about this. It just go, you you get it off your shoulders. You know what I mean? Because it's going to weigh heavy on you. Oh my gosh, I'm running late. I got to let them know I'm running late. Oh my God, I'm running late. And it's like, if you just stop for a second and say, hey guys, I'm running late. I'm trying to catch up. I'll be in soon. It just like codifies the shame spiral. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Are you feeling shame, Dave? Not shame, but I've got, I mean, I got to have an interview at 5 a.m. And that, that's what I mean. I wasn't late to go on the air, but late for the uh, interview. And, you know, that sort of depends on me. So the first thing I did was say, I said, I said overslept on the way. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and I, yeah, mm-hmm. Monday is a particularly bad day for it because you are kind of booked up with interviews. Yeah. Any other day, you could maybe roll in a little bit late. But of yeah. course, has to be the worst, the yeah. worst yeah. possible. Okay. And so also get through the shame spiral. What's right. next? Take a few minutes and calm down. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how you can get back on track. You just say, okay, what can I do? I need to shower. Do I need to get my clothes ready? Do I need to make coffee? You know, just really take a minute, calm down, and then start getting ready. Yeah. You might not be able to do all the things that you'd normally do had you woken up at your regular time. Well, I preset my clothes in the bathroom anyway. Yeah, just, I do the same thing. Yeah, I, we lay everything out so that way in the event we are late, boom, we're ready to go. But the thing I mentioned to you was mm-hmm. I, I also have to make a deliberate attempt not to try to rush into work because it, then it's dangerous. Right. So I'm just saying, okay, the, it's not worth, I'm only going to save 30 seconds, you know, if I start doing 70 across the bridge. And just a, a concerted attempt to say, stay within the speed limit. Yeah. Right. right. Stay positive as well. They say stay positive. Remember the phrase, it isn't happening to you. It's happening for you. Mm. So maybe it's the universe saying, oh, you needed some extra sleep. Oh, you just needed to, you know. Oh, why are we looking at Dave? I don't know. I'm just wondering if he's partying on the weekends now. <laughs> right. What are you doing? Weekends what are you built doing? in. I'm just curious. What you what you up to on Sunday nights, huh? Yeah, we just go crazy. <laughs> okay. Had a feeling. Had a feeling. So now, how did you? I did not to excuse. We only have a few minutes left, but he mm-hmm. said it. La- the feeling lasted all day. It, yeah. what, what was the feeling? Was it? Just like, am I doing the right thing? Am I making sense when I open my mouth? You know, just uh, things like that. Yeah. Was there I any fe- advice on shaking that? I mean, I, I went, yeah. I, I, I kept my usual appointment at, you know, at the gym and always felt, I, I usually feel better after that. Mm. Yeah. So again, in, in order for you to feel like you're going to get, because you're never going to really get caught up, right? Yeah, because right. You, you're going to constantly feel behind. Take that minute. Take a downtime. 
breathe, get your checklist, check some things off the checklist to make you feel like you're getting back on task. Now, there are people who are chronically late, Gen Zers, <laughs> and they've dumbed this time blindness. Mm. But look who's here, our Gen Z specialist, David Burbank. Well, he's also that. Uh, the millennial he's specialist. Never late, yeah, I am. I'm right titles. on the edge. I'm, I'm on the fence. Well, what's interesting is for me, I've, I've uh, overslept many times. And for this shift, I've done it a couple times. But you guys would never know because I'm alone <laughs> here right. in the station for uh, several hours. And for me, it all has to do with how many times do I hit snooze. Mm. If I hit it one too many times, my brain's like, well, that means we can just sleep. And, the you know, the thing. more you hit snooze, the more tired you are when you wake yeah. up. So just don't hit it and get up. But here's something that's really interesting about your generation, David, is that they're calling it time blindness. And they're actually going into job interviews asking, are there accommodations for people who struggle with time blindness? Oh, huh. ah, workplace accommodation. <laughs> it's called being fired. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. We'll be starting the news at 6.05 today instead of 6 o'clock. <laughs> there we go. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. You can hear us live every morning on 97.3 FM or subscribe to this podcast and you'll never miss the show.